Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Welcome to episode 000047 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through the eight this evening. I'd like to uh, start off by acknowledging the sacred lands from which I am broadcasting this evening to you, and that is the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and also acknowledging that what they went through to have many of their relatives and their ans- and their future ancestors with us today was just as challenging as what we're going through right now, if not more so. So yes, we are still here. Uh, the streets were deserted on my way in, which was a combination of eerie and heartening. It means, of course, that people are staying at home and doing the right thing. The right thing for them, the right thing for me, the right thing for you, the right thing for us. So we're... Um, <laughs> in a very unique situation where we can all be heroes by just simply staying on the couch and washing our hands regularly. That's a pretty sweet deal, I reckon. Speaking of the right thing to do, there are some pretty dramatic but necessary measures being put in place to protect the Aboriginal community and Aboriginal communities across the country, particularly remote Aboriginal communities from COVID-19. As of 4pm today, the Northern Territory have placed tight restrictions on its borders Anyone local or from interstate that entered the Territory are now required to self-isolate for 14 days, and I believe South Australia has done the same thing as well. This is, of course, to protect the broader community, but in particular, I guess, to protect the Aboriginal community. Because, of course, if this thing took hold in some of those remote communities, it not only could be devastating, it will be devastating. So shortly I'll be joined by the Deputy CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Control Health Organisation, Dawn Casey. Nacho has been working closely with governments, both state and federal and local, to work on measures to protect one of the most vulnerable cohorts of the community during this ongoing crisis. And as for the second half of the show, you may have heard in passing an announcement by the state government last week regarding a redress scheme for members of the Stolen Generation here in Victoria. It's a piece of news that has been lost in the havoc called COVID-19, so we thought we'd cover it here on the mission. I'll speak to Ian Ham, a member of the Stolen Generation and a man that wears many hats. He, along with many others, have worked tirelessly to try and get some justice for members of the Stolen Generation. So we'll talk to him about what the redress scheme means and uh, what it means to the Stolen Generation people in particular after such a long and arduous fight. So another interesting show. We'll see what happens, but whatever happens... Triple R will be here in one way or another. Management here have been working hard to come up with some contingency plans to keep the station on air, no matter what happens. It's important that that happens to retain our sense of community in times of chaos and isolation. And Triple R can be one of those threads that helps us stitch the fabric of society together because it's basically what we do. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You are listening to The Mission on Triple R 102.7. 
My name is Daniel James. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are some of the most vulnerable when it comes to exposure to COVID-19. Paramount in importance to the fight against the virus has been and will be the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. These Aboriginal community organisations are all over the country in places where there are significant Aboriginal populations or where there is need. NACHO, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, is the representative body for the sector and has been working closely with governments of all persuasions to ensure the appropriate measures are being implemented to protect vulnerable Aboriginal communities. On the line I have Dawn Casey, who is a descendant of the Tagalaka clan in North Queensland. She is Deputy CEO of NACHO and has been chiefly responsible for NACHO's response to COVID-19. And Dawn is on the line now. Dawn, welcome to the mission. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good to be on there. Thank you very much for your time. I know you're extremely busy, so um, I really appreciate it. But I know the audience appreciates it as well. First of all, let me ask, um, how are you and your family coping during these tumultuous times? Um, we're coping quite well, So, and but it's been interesting. Uh, my family in North Queensland are the same as people around the country. Um, one brother who used to who was working for a tourism area lost his job yesterday another brother who's halfway between getting a pension you know that that's difficult period and his wife who works as a domestic uh not domestic doing cleaning at the airport um well the airports are closing so Mm. you know it's the same everywhere around australia really yes it's the closing down of the economy and people losing their their employment from all sorts of all walks of life that um uh make this an absolutely and totally unique situation it's got nothing to do with skin color it's got nothing to do with discrimination it's one of those few instances where we're kind of all in it together which is you know a catchphrase that's been used a lot over the last couple of weeks yeah that's right and i I suppose there's um you know that there's a slight difference there is a difference in Mm. terms of Aboriginal people with their comorbidities are, you know, would have to be one of the most vulnerable together with the aged uh, in the rest of Australians. Absolutely. But um, we've got so many people who are even younger, you know, where we classify 50 50 years and older for Aboriginal people who, you know, have have these different diseases that they're contending with as well. Yeah, Yeah, when when you have Aboriginal people... Um, you know, thirty percent of Aboriginal people who have type two diabetes, uh, that that by itself is a significant comorbidity that can be impacted by this this virus. That's right. That's right. And heart disease, and yeah. Then we've got a younger cohort um, right across. You, you know, in many of the communities who've had who have rheumatic heart. Yeah. So especially in the territory. Yeah. And yep. one one thing I wanted to to ask you is that Nacho last week called for the Northern Territory to become a special control area for the control of COVID nineteen. Are you play, are you pleased with the way the authorities have responded to the virus in the NT? Um, well, in fact, um, our CEO Pat Turner um, wrote to the Prime Minister, and that was on behalf of a range of people: Western Australia, Kimberley, mm-hmm. um, Northern Territory, and then Queensland, and then South Australia. They've all asked could their remote communities be closed down? And the government has been very responsive to that. They're now working out the finer details of how that happens. 
because that responsibility does lay with each state and territory government. Just, you know, try and try and paint a picture of what it would look like if, if COVID-19 took, took hold in some of these remote communities. Well, you know, um, what, what the communities were saying when they asked for this extreme measure... And it's true, if it got into communities, they would be just devastated. I mean, they would be, you know, like the old elders in the community, um, well, uh, you know, they'd be in dire straits. Because the other issue is the government has been very, the federal government has been very responsive in, in you know, putting funds into evacuation measures for the Royal Flying Doctor and other organisations to come in and assist. But um, you don't you don't even want it to get to that because mm. people have serious um, diseases now, and for that, as we can see in what's happening around the around the world, um, the elderly, uh, you know, it's affecting them in a major way. Is the is the aim with some of those remote communities to potentially isolate them until there, you know, is is a is a vaccine or some some appropriate treatments? Um, well, you, you know, I think like all of us, um, even in regional areas, you ha- what they're hoping to do is isolate them for the next few months. Yeah. You know, keep these communities free of it. But in the other situation everyone's looking at is how do we isolate people if they're sick? Um, you know, because there are some really large communities and some some communities are working towards that. Here's an isolation area over in, you know, some old houses, and um, so it's keeping, and they've, they're preventing already uh, workers from coming into places unless they're kept in that quarantine for 14 days. Mm. They're concerned at the moment about children coming back from schools, boarding schools. They, so it's been um, people, both in government and our sector, have been working nonstop for three weeks now in trying to find solutions to each of these situations. Yeah, that's one of the interesting points. Not many people would realise this, I guess, but there are, you know, a significant amount of Aboriginal children that are in boarding schools in some of our, you know, major cities, you know, to obviously to, to get a really great education and to, to, to forward themselves. And the idea, of course, is every school holidays, those kids go back to some of those communities, some of them are remote, some of them not so remote. Um, so that's just an added and complex factor to this whole situation. That's correct. And um, in some places, um, like in, you know, Mark, Dr Mark Wendertong in, the, in Apunapina in, from Cairns and all the Northern Peninsula raised, um, and, and I think my understanding is that the children have gone home early, but also what it does is the residential colleges, it leaves them who are folks who are working, that'll close down because they rely, you know, and the children most probably won't go back in some to schools in some of these places to keep them mm. um, safe. Um, but, the, you know, there's some amazing creative innovation coming out of um, community control health services around the country as well. They're messaging how they advise um, community people of the issues and how to keep washing your hands, etc. And then there's a group of elders being taken, taken out of Belgo to keep them safe. Um, they're hoping to set up a camp where they'll go hunting and just keep away from um, those difficult areas. So the amount of um, creativity and that people initiating themselves is extraordinary. Yeah, I've been um, uh, fortunate enough to see 
um, some um, videos on social media where you know warnings about washing your hands and social distancing have uh, you know been communicated in language for, for for some of the communities up there. So that's really heartening to see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but like the rest of Australia, you know, Aboriginal people mainly live in urban and regional areas. And, you know, there are so many achos in cities and, and in, in, in regional areas, you know, here in Victoria, of course, and, and in Melbourne, we have, we have VARS, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Um, what measures are being put in place to, to protect some of the, the, the more urban communities? So what the, some of the, um, uh, many of the achos are doing themselves, uh, setting, you know, just to um, deal with the patients who potentially might have COVID or feel that they have COVID now, um, what they're doing is setting up separate entrances. So, and in one case, I know that they've gone out to the car and tested people, mm. etc. Um, the government has allocated funding to set up respiratory clinics and also state governments have set up um, respiratory clinics and I know that particularly in Victoria um, they're getting some assistance from the Victorian government because the other shortage, the other issue around has been protective equipment and I know in in Victoria they were certainly seeking the support um, from the state government to provide some of that equipment so and and the federal government's allocated some funding to um, where they're, they're not setting up the archos themselves, because not every archo in metropolitan areas will be a respiratory clinic. They've allocated some funding to help archos make sure that um, their patients have access, culturally appropriate um, access to respiratory clinics. Yeah, I mean, the anecdotal evidence I've had down here is that, you know, VARS has been doing a fantastic job and have been taking all the necessary, you know, precautions and measures. And so, you know, if you fit the criteria and and you think you need a a COVID check, um, the advice on whether you need a COVID-19 check will probably change overnight as we potentially move to stage two. But, um, you know, rest assured that if if you mob out there, you can go down to VARS and um, they'll look after you as best as possible. They're taking every potential precaution to to look after themselves and and, and you. So um, don't be afraid to go and get checked out. Yeah, and that, you're absolutely right about that. That's the other message that um, community control health services around the country are trying to get out to the mob as well because the other issue confronting Aboriginal people is they don't necessarily go in when they're sick. That's right. So to get the, that message is being sent out, yeah, yeah and Barzi is doing a fantastic job. I mean, you've 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 got you've had a very distinguished career in um, in the public service, and uh, you've been in and around, you know, working for your people, you know, pretty much your whole professional life. Um, there's there's a reticence for people to go in and, and, and become in contact with government systems because of you know historical um, atrocities, intergenerational trauma. Um, but the other thing on top of this, and you know, I'd be interested in your insight, but a lot of Aboriginal people just get used to living with a comorbidity. They actually get used to, to being sick. And that actually often results in them not actually presenting to a health service or a hospital or an emergency department until it's far too late. We can't afford to have that this time around, can we? No, we can't. And certainly that's the messaging that needs to go out um, um, to everyone 
But what is really fantastic about our community-controlled health services is they know their mob. Yeah. You know, if they're in Bendigo or they're in you know, even though um, some of the mob mightn't go to the Archer all of the time, we all know our mob, and we can, and they're on the lookout to go and help the elders. They can, and in communities, remote communities, they know and they can go and find them. Um, because we will be on the lookout and watching very, very carefully um, what happens to, to you know, our people in, and particularly the elderly in respect to COVID. And the other big issue, the big message we want to get out is that the flu vaccine should be available in April and it's really, really mm. important that um, we get vaccinated for the flu because that helps. It doesn't stop it, but it helps. That's absolutely essential because we don't know. I mean, if if we're if we're just thinking about it logically, you know, even the the fittest the fittest healthiest person would struggle big time with a dose of the flu and the dose of COVID nineteen at the same time. So when those flu vaccines become available, every person should should get themselves, but particularly Aboriginal people. And correct me if I'm wrong. Dawn, but the, the flu shot, as it stands at the moment, is freely available to um, all Aboriginal people? That's right. So it's freely available to all Aboriginal people. Um, also, this year, um, if Aboriginal people haven't, they, they need to know that from babies, um, from six months or five months to um, four years old, children, babies can have it. And then for over 65, there's a different sort of flu shot, which, flu shot, which has four of the... Um, varieties of flu, so to speak, in there for over 65. Right. So, yeah, so it's really important that people do that. It is 23 past seven. You're listening to the mission on Triple R. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking to Dawn Casey, the Deputy CEO of uh, Nacho, and we're having a yarn about some of the measures that are being put in place to try and protect the Aboriginal community and Aboriginal communities across the country. One of the um, elephants in the room, and, and it's not something that I've seen any sort of pronouncements on from any sort of chief health officer or chief medical officer or any, any of the state or territory authorities, but there is, of course, a massive over-representation of Aboriginal people in the prison system. We actually make up 30% of the overall prison populations. Um, what contingencies, if any, are being put in place for when and or if COVID-19 takes hold in some of those prisons? Um, so that's been well um, advocated um, for by there's a there's a there's a task force um, which is representatives of all the affiliates and public health medical officers and state and territory governments and we've got some of the directors of Ar and CEOs of Archos on there and that's been constantly. Um, advocated that we need to watch the, our mob in prison. Mm. Um, and they're OK, you, you know, so the state governments are on notice that they need to watch that. Um, what we need to watch are, and, and in, in fact, a couple of, um, a, a number of Aboriginal organisations have asked if they're in there for minor offences, they should be allowed to go home. Mm. Um, but the big issue will be... Um, when they, if they come out of prison, that needs to be handled very carefully as well. And one, another message I might um, give sure. is it's really important if people are isolated, if they've been told to go home, 
that they stick to that. They do not leave that house if they've if they've got the virus. You know, um, yeah, and, and, it's and that's just highly, highly contagious. And you know, I think I think one thing that we're all realising during you know this current situation is how much we actually sort of miss physical contact, you know. And with the, you know, extended families that, that Aboriginal people have in, in, in tight-knit communities, there will be a massive temptation to, you know, go and give the nephew, go and give the grandchild, you know, a hug or a kiss and a peck, but you, you just cannot do that. You've, if they're not living with you, if they are not actually in your household, if they are living elsewhere, you can't go and give them a big hug or a big kiss. You've got to remain socially distant from them, which is, you know, a very dramatic thing for a lot of elders across the country, but it's something that is absolutely necessary. Yeah, no, that's right. And, in fact, you have to stay. Um, you do have to stay a metre and a half away. I mean, that's yep. been proven. The more you, the distance you stay away, the better it is, the less, you know, that can happen. So before I, um, I'll let you know, we know some of the measures that individuals can take and, and what we can do to look after ourselves, social distancing being one of those 1.5 metres away from each other at the very least, uh, social isolation, self-quarantine if you've come in contact with someone who's potentially had COVID-19. What else should be being considered by governments and other authorities to, to protect the mob? Um, well, they're, they're certainly doing, relying on community-controlled health services quite a bit and getting they're getting the messages out to everyone. I think um, people need to keep an eye on that messaging. I think what's really been um, very helpful um, is that, as I understand it, I haven't checked absolutely all the detail, but for people in Newstart, they're getting increases in funding. That's right. Um, my understanding is that... Um, you don't have to fulfil the requirements to front up in some areas, like CDUP, the compliance requirements around that has been um, put by the wayside at the Thankfully, moment in terms yeah. of reporting, thank goodness. So um, I, I think it's really, I, I think it's good, you know, food, food security is becoming a bit of an issue because, um, you know, trying to get to the shops and when you get to the shops by some of our urban and regional air um, communities um, especially where and where there's been those bushfires up and down the east coast mm -hmm. um, somehow or other we need to enable well everyone to get this food um, and toilet paper and you know um, other because there's not even meat sometimes it's completely cleaned out of Woolworths and coal so yeah um, and not just in any remote communities in particular not just um uh, uh food but nutritious food and and food that's available we've seen over the course of um you know history dawn you know supplies up there price gouging you know you know two dollars for a for, for one apple four dollars for for a banana that sort of thing that's that's another element to this that really needs to to, to be considered that's right. So, um, and in remote as well, it's how the food is taken in these days. Mm. So people need to, and that, that's all being worked through on a daily basis. Like it is essential, an essential service, but people going into those communities need to have protective equipment, you know, that they're wearing where they wouldn't normally even think about it. So it, it's just extraordinary the amount of things that you have to, think about and that people are thinking about these days to um, 
to limit um, COVID in communities and amongst our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people overall, but all the elements that go with it. It's just um, like, well, it, you, you understand and everyone understands, like it's it's been like nothing else we've seen before in, well, I haven't seen before. It's, it's, and it's an, a complex and unfolding situation with very many moving parts. Um, you're at the, the front line of it in um, an advocacy and policy sense. I thank you very much for your work and I hope you take care of yourself as we uh, try and get this thing under control. Yep, thank you so much. All the best to everyone. Thanks, Dawn. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are listening to Triple R, 102.7 FM. This is The Mission. My name is Daniel. Now, in all of the um, fear and alarm over the last few weeks, you might have missed the announcement last week of a redress scheme for members of the Victoria's Stolen Generation to uh, address the trauma and suffering caused by the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families. The State Government has announced a $10 million funding injection for this landmark reform. And while you're here, might as well just give you a bit of a refresher as to why the redress scheme is so important. Because between 1910 and the 1970s, approximately one in ten Aboriginal children were forcibly removed from their families, communities and culture and placed in institutions or adopted by non-Indigenous families under government policies of the day. And many of these stories, of course, were documented in the Bringing Them Home report, the National Inquiry into the Separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children from Their Families, way back in 1997. And of course, on top of the the forced removal, the, the, the grief and suffering caused by that removal, stolen children were often subjected to harsh and degrading treatment, including abuse, exploitation, racism, and many were also denied an education. So this is important. Ian Ham is on the line, and he's a Yorta Yorta man, a fellow Yorta Yorta man. He's a member of the Stolen Generation himself, and he's been working tirelessly over a number of years to assist members of the Stolen Generation in a range of roles, probably most notably the with uh, with the Healing Foundation. And like I said, he's on the line now. And welcome back to the mission. Good evening, Daniel. This is your third time now on the mission, so you probably, I think, I think we could probably give you um, official friend of the show status. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we kick off, first of all, how are you and your family coping in these tumultuous times? Yeah, we're fine. We're um, obviously in our own. You know, we're limiting our contact outside. Um, I've been working at home for two weeks now. Uh, My wife started working at home last week. Mm Um, my kids have uh, been at home, uh, my son was home last week from university and my daughter uh, started school holidays early. So we're all kind of in the house together. Um, you know, I think this time will test a number of things about <laughs> families. Um, but luckily, we all love each other deeply. Um, but it is, it is a trying time. I mean, I'm a 55-year-old Aboriginal person. I'm asthmatic and I've got a... Uh, I had pneumonia uh, Severely a few years ago. Right. So, so you're more susceptible. Um, like, yeah, yeah. I've, you know, I've hit the jackpot. Fifty-five-year-old asthmatic <laughs> Aboriginal who's got an ammonia weakened immune system. So, yep. Um, no, we're going okay. We're fine. I can I can remember when you had your first one. Um, was it? Is it Jasper? 
Yeah, Jasper, yeah. I remember when he was first born and now you're breaking the news to me that he's coming back home from university early. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's home. He's good. That just shows how old you are, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. It does. How old we are, Ian. Thank you very much. Yeah, both of us, yeah. Now, this is the question that I wanted to ask you first up in terms of the redress scheme. Uh, was was the announcement of the redress scheme last week a, a happy day, a sad day, or a bittersweet day for you? It was probably a day of thank goodness at last for mm-hmm. me, to be honest. Um, look, I'm glad the government did it. Uh, the Victorian government has done it. Uh, I look, look I'll, I'll be honest and say I thought it could have been done many years earlier by not only this government but previous governments. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it has been done, and particularly in a time of, of budgetary constraint, if somebody had said to me, do you think the government would do this? Uh, I've got to be honest and thought, no, well, yes, they will, but they won't do it at the, the current time. He said even in the lead-up to this, before the coronavirus, before the bushfires, the state government budget was under pressure. Yeah. Um, but they've still, they've still done it. I mean, to their credit, they could have easily just kicked the can down the road. Instead, they didn't. Um, so I'm glad they have, but as I said, this could have been done by successive governments years earlier, but it's good that it's been done. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, it could have been done so, so much earlier. I think one of the, the heartbreaking things uh, about the announcement is that we've lost so many members of the Stolen Generation to this point, yeah. and um, some of them have been, you know, warriors for the cause for, for so long, and it's just really sad not to have them here with us. Oh, oh, well, I mean, the the I think the most poignant one is Eunice Wright, the yeah. late Auntie Eunice Wright, who died the Friday before the announcement was made. Yeah. Um, and she'd been a tireless campaigner for stolen generations, people, and for particularly a redress scheme. Um, and she died a matter of days before the government announced it. That's just heartbreaking in the extreme. But I think it also shows that, you know, uh, look... It, there's some work done by the um, Healing Foundation about how many stolen generations uh, people there actually were alive in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and they did it off a 2018 data set. There was 17,150, according to the data. The ABS, Bureau of Statistics, routinely say there's about a 20, 25% undercount of Aboriginal people in anything. That's right. So, yeah, so if, 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 you, if you look at that, then obviously the figure goes over well over 20,000 people, um, and for Victoria, uh, the figure we had for Victoria was 1,029. And even when you allow for, for you know, death rates since that data was done, we're still looking, once you take into account the undercount, we're still looking at somewhere between 1,100 to 1,200 people, maybe even more than 1,200 people, resident in the state of Victoria, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander stolen children um, who are alive today. You're not insignificant population. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's yeah. a significant, it's a significant slice of, of the Aboriginal population yeah. down here. You're yeah, one of them. Yeah. Um, did you want to share a little bit of your story so people sort of get an understanding of the, the yeah. mechanics of how this whole thing worked? Yeah, so I was separated from my mother. I was born in 1964. I was separated from my mother three weeks after I was born. Um, I was adopted three months later. Um, one of the things that, and this is what the whole hit and miss with this, I went through the same 
adoption home as Russell Moore, or he, as his adopted name was, James Savage. Um, yeah, right. uh, he, he was adopted by uh, some Salvation Army people from the US who took him to America where he grew up, didn't fit in. It, it all went, you know, it all went bad. Uh, he ended up homeless on the streets, had alcohol and drug problems. Um, he's currently serving a life sentence in the state of Florida. Um, I was adopted by uh, Charlie Mary Ham, who grew up in Yarrawonga. Um, and compared to others, I was, you know, I've been reasonably fortunate. The randomness of it is, is that is that um, the difference is he's six months older than me. Yeah. Um, if if Charlie and Mary Ham had turned up six months earlier, and the people who adopted James uh, or adopted Russell Moore to become James Savage had turned up six months later, he would be sitting here as Ian Ham. Mm. Russell Moore would have become Ian Ham, and Andrew James would have become James Savage. Um, that's just the randomness of how this all happened. Um, I often look at that and think that there, for the grace of God, go I, which has kind of been a driver of mine about why I do what I do in this space. So I grew up in Yarrawonga, a small country town, and here's another part of randomness. I could have gone anywhere in Australia or indeed anywhere in the world and end up 40 miles from where I'm from, yeah, Yarrawonga. Right. Just James, upstream. Where are we from? We're from Shep. We're from Shepparton, and Marupna. You shake a you shake a tree, a James will fall out. Fall out of it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I could have gone anywhere in the world. I end up forty miles from where I'm from, and I didn't know I was from there until yeah. I'd left Yarra and moved on and stuff like that. Until you know, late teens, early twenties, when I started looking for where I was from. That's the randomness of this. Um, and you look at your experiences as you grow up. I mean, Yarrawong was 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 okay to grow up in. I got it, you know. Mum and Dad loved us. There, we were their kids and stuff. But there was there were times when it was rammed home to you that you didn't fit in, not by my parents, but by others, um, that you didn't fit in. That that you know, you should be grateful that that somebody wanted you. That yeah. You shouldn't aspire to much in life. That kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, once getting, once getting, you know, the crap beat out of me by somebody who moved to Yarrawonga because he was from where. New Aborigines because he was from Swan Hill. He wasn't a black fellow, he was a white fellow. And, yeah. You know, and I didn't know any of that. So so that kind of stuff makes you who you are. And I'm, I'm reckon I'm one of the, I put this in inverted commas, the lucky ones. When I look at, and you know, I hear what happened to others and understand their stories and the, the detrimental effect it has had, not only on their childhood, but for their entire lives. Um, and you know that, uh, and that, yeah. and that, you know, the impact that it's had on them permeates through the generations to their children and, and their grandchildren. Um, oh, it, it does. Like well, as you're saying about Jasper when he was born, um, when he, when he was born, Catherine held him for a minute, and then she gave him to me. And the first thing I said to my son was, "Nobody's going to take you away from me, little man." Yeah. I don't know where that came from. I still don't. It came from so deep inside me. That was the first thing I said, you know. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's, that, who knows where that came from, but, you know, that's potentially yeah. your, your parents and your grandparents and yeah. their parents, or, or, you know, talking through you. You know, I don't... Yeah. You know, you're, you're not too mystical like I am, but, um, you know, yeah. there's, there's something in that, you know. Yeah. 
So that, 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 for example, is just the impact it has on people. The first thing I said to my firstborn when I held him was, nobody's going to take you away from me. So this stuff about the intergenerational effects, even now with my kids, I'm very conscious of them and their Aboriginality and how they connect and define it and be part of the community. Because I don't want them having any of the baggage I do. And, and, I, and as I said, I reckon I'm one of the, the fortunate ones. For those who had a terrible had a terrible life because they were they were stolen away as children and and the and how their children have inherited that burden and even their grandchildren have. You can see how a redress scheme is long overdue. Um, but we need to we need to accelerate on it and we need to do something with it to at least bring some peace to people's lives. So at least we can we can try and reduce the intergenerational effects, if nothing else. So, to, to to the redress scheme itself, what is it? What does it look like, and and how is it actually going to assist members of the stolen generation? Yeah, look, one of the things that has obviously been um, a, a big issue is direct financial compensation to members of the stolen generation, um, and I say that not because it's just a bucket of money, but most of these people have lived their lives. Um, without much of anything. Oh, you know, some of them have been in extreme poverty. Most most of the stolen generation people have never been what you call well off. Yep. They've got by. Um, at least in their... And I will say in the, the final part of their lives, because I'm 55 and I'm at the younger end of it. Um, I mean, I'm eligible for aged care now, apparently, because I'm Aboriginal, which really... No, I believe it. me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, but, but it's... But really provide some relief in a financial sense to make the third, the last, or the third stage of their lives far more comfortable and also that they have something to pass on to the future, to, to, their, to their succeeding generations. That's really important. The other part of it is it's not just about money. It's what can be done in providing direct services to them as individuals, which is different to the other things that are funded, like Connecting Home or the Healing Foundation. Those things are also part of this whole whole uh, uh, response to the stolen generations and must and will continue, but in a direct and personalised sense. And, and one of the things which I noted in the, in the government's um, announcement the other day with there being discussion about a funeral fund, yeah. see, one of the really heartbreaking things is money had people... really distressed me when, I, when people... I know people who've led a pretty ordinary life have struggled with their lives and then to be buried as a pauper, that's just the most disgraceful indictment on on how our country has regarded this section of, of our fellow Australians. That's just appalling. I think one of the things that was mentioned, as I said, was around a funeral fund. I think if we cannot provide dignity in life, we should, at least we can provide it in death. So that's, you know, that's some of the things that have been spoken of as what a redress scheme might cover. Yeah, so many, so many Aboriginal people have been, you know, buried without headstones, without funeral services, yep. um, just not yeah. having the ability to to afford a funeral fund, and you know, as a result of their, you know, um, you know, pauper status, their family obviously hasn't had money either. So that that is something yeah. that can go a long way, and that that brings so much comfort and so much healing to to various communities if they can go somewhere and they actually have a headstone to, to, to look yeah. at and, and to mourn their, their loved one. Yeah. I think I think 
one thing with the redress scheme, and the government acknowledged it the other day when it made the announcement that this was the beginning of a redress, uh, a, the beginning of a redress scheme. The ten million dollars that they announced was the beginning of a redress scheme. So I mean, I was asked, I've been asked, do I think ten million dollars is enough? And my my start. gut feeling is having, yeah, it's a start. I think there will be, uh, there needs to be further money added to this because as we. As the government said, he wants to consult with the community on what the redress scheme might look like, and importantly, that consultation has to be primarily with the nearly 1,200 Aboriginal people who are resident in this state who are, in fact, the stolen children themselves. Um, but it will show that $10 million isn't enough, and there will need to be further monies added to it. But the government, to its credit, said that's the case. So um, I think there will be further ideas, other than what has been mentioned so far, if we're truly to do something to try and curb the effects of the stolen generations going forward. Well, you'll continue that dialogue with uh, the government. When, no matter what persuasion it is, there are still many of the stolen generation are about, and uh, so many have uh, a strong and passionate voice. So there will be reminders to the government, no matter whether which side of the fence that they sit on, that this yeah. thing exists and that needs to be implemented. Yeah, and, and, and uh, it certainly... Aboriginal people will never let this go. Um, well, you know, we'll never let this go, Daniel. Certainly yep. myself, I've been doing this directly involved with, with trying to do something myself for, oh, God, now I'm going to give me age away here, about 23 years, I think. Yeah. Um, since, the, since the first Bringing Them Home inquiry. Um, um, there are others who will keep doing it, the wider Aboriginal community. It's simply something as a nation that we cannot turn away from and we shouldn't. And, and look, I do have to pay, give credit to Gavin Jennings as the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Almost his last um, act as Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. He's, uh, his last act as a Member of Parliament. Yep. He, he, he was determined to get this done. So Gavin's been involved with the, uh, responding to the stolen generations in government and from opposition when they were out of government for a few years. Since 2003, I think it has been. Um, and he... He uh, provided the funding for um, Stolen Generations Victoria and then Connecting Home. He's been a passionate advocate for it in government and his final act was to get through Cabinet on his last Cabinet meeting was um, the redress scheme, the commencement of the redress scheme. So he, his commitment to this has been unwavering and, and you know I think Gavin, Gavin in this instance is an uncommonly decent man um, in the bare pit of politics to have stuck with this for so long. Well, it's a nice legacy to have. Um, you mentioned yeah. um, before that uh, you know uh, you, you were bashed as a young man. I wanted to bash you a couple of times just for the ties that you used to wear, but um, that's another <laughs> issue that we could talk about some other time. Ian Ham, thank you so much for your work and time. Pleasure, Daniel. Always happy to have a chat. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>